0: Well, I want to kick off tonight with a top 10 list. I love these top 10 lists. Here tonight are the top 10 ways to know if you're a Pharisee. Top 10 ways to know if you're a Pharisee. Number 10, you consider your church's membership role the Lamb's Book of Life. In other words, we're the only ones. Number 9, you're disgusted with the filth that's coming out of your DVD player. (laughs) Think about it. Number eight, you pray twice as long in public as you do in private. Number seven, you think any church that's not growing must be watering down the gospel. Number six, you don't drink IBC root beer because it looks like a real beer bottle. Okay. Number five. Number five. You won't let your kids watch the movie Chronicles of Narnia because one of the characters is a witch. The number four way you know you're a Pharisee, you read only the King James Version of the Bible because that's what Paul used. Number three, you walked out of a church once because it served real wine for communion. Number two, you're suspicious of everybody's motive but your own And then the number one way you know you're a Pharisee, you tithe your money, every paycheck, and everybody knows it. Well, the Pharisees that we'll talk about tonight were a sect of Jews who colored the religious landscape of Jesus' day. Traditionalists, fundamentalists, they interpreted the law literally. They observed it with a strict wooden observance, a legalism. The Pharisees, they were good at keeping up appearances, but their worship lacked heart. The Pharisees were known for their hypocrisy and their hollowness. Sadly, the Pharisees are still alive and well. In fact, there might just be a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. Tonight, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about these Pharisees. Well, in Luke chapter 11, verse 37, we read, and as he spoke A certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And now all the moms in the crowd are completely shocked. Jesus didn't wash his hands before dinner. Actually, the Pharisee should have owned stock in Perel. They were the hand sanitizers of their day. They were into washing hands, but not for hygienic reasons. They practiced ceremonial washing. In an effort to please God, they washed their hands, oh, in a certain way, for a certain number of times. It was salvation by scrubbing. And Jesus refused to lend a hand. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? So what if your hands are as white as a freshly fallen snow, if your heart is as filthy as a mechanic's greasy hands? What pleases God is not a right appearance, but it's a right attitude. It's a right heart. He cares about what's on the inside, not just on the outside. Verse 41, But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. When you honor God with what you possess, when you give him his portion, then your conscience is clear to enjoy what remains. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, And pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Now, the Pharisees, they were meticulous tithers. And they would go through the spice rack. And they would count out all of the poppy seeds and the bay leaves and the granules of nutmeg. And they would make sure that each tenth was tithed. They made sure that God got his share of all the spices as if God cared. You know, they treated God as if he were some narrow and senile old man who had lost touch with what really mattered, as if he cared about the spices when the world was going to hell. Far more important to God were issues like justice and love. You know, here's another way to know if you're a Pharisee. You minor on the major issues while you major on the minor issues. A few years ago, I ran across a tribute to Martin Luther King, Jr. It was written by a white fellow who happened to be alive during the 1960s. Here's an excerpt of what he wrote. I don't know how we missed it. While King marched in Selma and an entire race cried out for justice, I heard sermons against rock and roll, the Beatles, Many skirts and long hair, but I never heard them mention racism, injustice, intolerance, hatred, bigotry. Those are the things God hates. Those are the things that Scripture really does speak against. You know, I can relate. As a child, I attended a church full of folks who were so proud that they weren't like those dirty hippies. The outside of their cup was sparkling clean while the inside was full of self-righteousness and bigotry and hatred. They were too superficial to even look past the color of a man's skin. Jesus had harsh words for these Pharisees. He says, "'Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen.'" And the men who walk over them are not aware of them. You know, if a Jew touched a grave full of dead men's bones for a period of time, it meant that he or she was unclean or unfit for worship. This was the case if the contact was incidental or accidental. And yet Jesus says the hypocrisy of the Pharisees was the real source of their defilement. Their attitude contaminated the folks More folks than any unmarked grave might contaminate. Verse 45, then one of the lawyers, remember when we talk about a lawyer, we're not talking about a Perry Mason type or a Matlock type or a, give me a more modern example, that type. (laughs) This, This kind of a lawyer was a religious scholar. He was an expert in the law of Moses, thus a lawyer. Well, he answered and he said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. (laughs) His toes were aching, weren't they? They had been stepped on. You know, it's interesting. Jesus never scolded the prostitutes or the tax collectors, the blatant sinners. He reached out to them with a surprising love and mercy and grace and gentleness. No, he saved these harsh words for the religious folks, for the lawyers and the Pharisees and the scribes and the hypocrites and the self-righteous. You know, the one trait that God insists on from us all is honesty. And then he said, "'Woe to you, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers.'" You know, the Jewish religious leaders, they interpreted the law as this maze of impossible commands. You know, a common person didn't have time to attend to all of its details. In contrast, God intended for the law to be simple. The law was basically love on display. It was an illustration of what love for God and love for your brother actually looked like. And yet the Pharisees, they had turned the law into a ladder. A long ladder that you had to climb to prove you deserve God's love. And this ladder had far too many rungs for you and I to ever make it to the top. You see, the Jews did to God's law what Detroit did to the automobile. I read recently where the average car today, it has 14,000 different parts. And many of those parts require their own tool to Manipulate. The complexity of a modern car has put the shade tree mechanic out of business. And of course, this is all intentional. For if you want your car repaired, what's the idea? You got to take it to the dealer. And this was why the Pharisees had complicated the law. If you wanted to please God, you had to come to them, you had to play by their rules. Jesus offered the people a different path. That's why he was a threat to their authority. And then he continues, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. You honor these men that your fathers killed. How hypocritical is that? Today, if you go to Israel and visit the Kidron Valley, there between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, you'll find a series of tombs. The Jews of Jesus' day built these tombs to honor the devotion and the piety of the prophets of old. Yet ironically, the piety of these prophets would have pitted them against these Pharisees. I mean, the hypocritical Pharisees were honoring men that they would have tried to kill had they been living at the time. Well, he goes on, Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles And some of them they will kill and persecute that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel. You remember Abel was the Bible's first martyr. He was killed by Cain, his brother. To the blood of Zechariah. This was the Old Testament's last martyr who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. In other words, the Jewish establishment that nailed Jesus to the cross will bear the responsibility for having rejected the testimony of all the prophets from the beginning to the end, from Abel all the way to Zechariah. He says, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. It's been said, if you can't lead and you won't follow, then get out of the way. All you're being is a dandy roadblock. That's what these men were. That was the Pharisees. Supposedly, they were the representatives of heaven, yet they were sending folks to hell. You know, there's only one thing better than going to heaven, and that's taking somebody with you. But you know, there's only one thing worse than going to hell, and that's taking somebody with you. and that's what these Pharisees were doing. He says, and as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. From here on out, it starts to get ugly. And over the next few months, their hatred for Jesus will come to a boil. It'll hatch an assassination plot. They'll start to try to kill him and they'll start to plot their plan. Well, chapter 12 begins, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another. And there's a huge crowd. It's kind of a mob had gathered. It's kind of like a rock concert with festival seating. You know, the crowds had grown with curiosity around Jesus. And now everybody had heard of the miracles. They all wanted to see them for themselves. And so this huge crowd had gathered. Recall the times when Jesus told the recipient of a miracle like Jairus and his wife. You remember he would say, mom's the word. Don't tell anybody what's happened. And and, and you scratch your head and you think, why does he say that? Well, here's why. It was crowd control. Jesus knew that these mobs were gathering. They they wanted to see more miracles. And, And when news got out of a miracle, more people would join the throng. In fact, John chapter 6 says that around this time, one out-of-control mob actually tried to make Jesus king against his own wishes. They wanted to forcibly put him into power. It's amazing the the crowds that surrounded Jesus and how out-of-control they became. You wonder where these people were when the Romans nailed Jesus to the cross. They had gone by that point. Well, through chapter 12 and into chapter 13, Jesus teaches his disciples using a popular method of teaching among the rabbis of his day called stringing beads. You know, oriental women, they would make necklaces by slipping one bead at a time along the string. When they would fill it up with beads and they would tie the string together and they'd have a nice necklace. Well, likewise... When a rabbi randomly wanted to cover related topics, he would just sort of put them all together one at a time, and he would call it stringing beads. This is what Jesus is doing in these next few verses. And the first topic that he tackles is hypocrisy. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Still on these Pharisees now. The Greek word translated hypocrite, or the word hypokritus, referred to a stage performer. Actors would perform under these larger-than-life masks, and these masks would contain a device within them that would augment the volume of the voice. Over time, the word hypokritus became synonymous for a person who was pretending to be something that he was not. A hypocrite. A hypocrite is a poser. A hypocrite wears a mask. And the Pharisees were the premier posers. They had a phony faith. They pretended to love God. But in reality, you know, they only loved everyone thinking that they loved God. That's what they loved. They augmented their devotion with this pious appearance. And Jesus compares their hypocrisy to leaven. Or to yeast. Leaven works from the inside out. Leaven corrupts by puffing up. And this is hypocrisy's impact on our lives. It promotes pride. And when pride gets in, it contaminates us from the inside out. People end up appearing more spiritual than they really are. They become hypocrites. Well, in verse 2, Jesus puts another bead on the string. He says, "...for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed." nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. You've probably heard me tell the story of appearing on the matrix board at the Braves game. You know, it's really a stunning sight when you look up and you see yourself 70 feet tall, on that matrix board in living color in front of 40,000 fans. It's an amazing sight, especially when you're picking your nose. Oh, my. The cameraman caught me. But imagine standing there in God's judgment hall and watching your every evil act and every thought suddenly pop up on the matrix board in heaven. Oh, my. It's all right there on God's hard drive. Understand, secrets don't exist. Not with God. Everything private will one day be made public. The only person who has access to the delete key is Jesus. That's right. That's why you need to repent and trust in him. He'll forgive you. He'll erase your embarrassing files and pics. You don't want to go to heaven without his forgiveness. Or stand in the judgment hall. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do to you. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. You know, it's foolish to worry about the harm people might inflict on me while I'm ignoring God. I mean, he's the one who can do the real damage, don't you think? Ever heard of hell? God has the power to write my ticket and put me on the bus straight to hell. It's been said, fear God, and you'll have no one else to fear. Verse 6 tells us, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? And this word translated copper coins is the word asarion. It was the Roman equivalent of a penny. So, these little birds sold for less than half a cent apiece. You could get five for two pennies. And yet, God tracks them on heaven's radar. Even though they may be worthless in the eyes of man, in God's eyes, he's aware of them. He understands them. He cares about them. And he cares about you even more. Notice he says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Did you know that if you have blonde hair, now, I mean, your original hair was blonde. If you have blonde hair, you have approximately 140,000 hairs on your head. If you're a brunette, you have close to 125,000 strands of hair. And if you're a redhead... You have about 90,000 strands of hair. But these are just estimates that vary from head to head. Mine's a little more, Wayne's a little less. But God knows exactly how many hairs are on our head at any given moment, no less. God is so crazy about you, he keeps a running tally of your head hair. Every time you run a brush through your hair, The number changes, but God keeps track. He is more personally involved in your life than you might at first realize. Also, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the son of man, also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Wow. Everybody says they love God in the sugary, sweet atmosphere of church. But are you bold enough to stand up for God in front of evil men? You know, these verses are pretty clear. Whether you stand up for Jesus on earth before men determines ultimately whether he will stand up for you in heaven before the angels. He says, in, who, in, in anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, It will not be forgiven. Here is the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Here is one of the most misunderstood verses in all of the Bible. Jesus mentions a sin that won't be forgiven. This is the only sin that won't be forgiven. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now remember what the Holy Spirit comes to do. What his job is. In John 15, verse 26, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, He will testify of me. The Holy Spirit doesn't point people to himself. The Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. Now, Jesus has been speaking to Jews who have rejected him. In fact, they've even ascribed his miracles to Satan. You remember last week. They had also dismissed the Father's witness of the Son the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, even the voice of the Father that spoke of Jesus at his baptism. They had rejected the Son. They had rejected the Father. They had rejected the witness of both. Yet hope was still alive. Why? Well, the Father spoke from heaven. Jesus spoke from earth. But the Holy Spirit would soon come and speak directly to their hearts. The Spirit of God would get inside their heads And through his inner witness, he would confirm to them the truth about Jesus. Here's what Jesus is saying here. You can deny the voice from heaven, the prophetic voice of the Father. You can deny the voice on earth, the voice of reason, the voice of Jesus. But if you deny the inner voice, the voice of conviction, well, you have denied the last voice, God's last attempt to convince you of the truth. You know, they had said no to God. They had said no to Jesus, but the Spirit was going to come. If they say no to Him, there's no other voice. That's the last voice through which God was going to speak, the voice of the Holy Spirit. Thankfully, the voice of the Spirit is a lingering, longing, loving voice, but His is still the last voice through which God intends to speak. Be glad the Holy Spirit doesn't give up easily on us. John Bunyan called the Holy Spirit the hound of heaven. He's like a bloodhound. He tracks you and he trees you. But if you continually to reject him, he will eventually leave you. God turns you over to your unbelief. Jesus is saying, reject the Father, reject the Son, but there's still hope. The Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to witness of me. But die saying no to the Holy Spirit, and you have forfeited God's forgiveness forever. Well, in verse verse 11, Jesus says, Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I love that promise. It's hard to prepare for life's every contingency. I mean imagine tomorrow being arrested and being brought to trial for your faith in Jesus. It's a scenario we seldom think about. I mean given that what would defense would you muster for yourself? What would you say in that moment if you were brought before the authorities, for the magistrates? Jesus is saying, "Hey, in the face of the unexpected, trust the Holy Spirit. He'll give you the words to say at just the right time." And then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me judge or an arbitrator over you? (laughs) Now here's a lesson for pastors and for counselors. I love this. Jesus doesn't just jump into a situation that's none of his business. Of course, you'd think everything is Jesus' business. He's God, and in a sense that's true. But here here Jesus is baited to get into a family squabble between two brothers. He's being baited here to, to take sides, and yet he refuses. I can identify with his situation. Been there, done that, trust me. How often have I been asked by a husband to corral a wife, or asked by a wife to try to tame her husband, it happens every day. But here's what happens. When you take sides in a situation, in a he said, she said kind of an argument, you lose the high ground. You become immersed in the squabble. Jesus is very wise here. He avoids getting used by either side of this squabble. Instead, Jesus addresses the deeper problem that exists in both hearts. And he said to them, notice that, not, he didn't say to her, or one brother, or to the other brother, he said to them. He speaks to them both. He stays above the fray. He preserves his neutrality to speak the truth to both. And he says, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. To the one brother, Jesus says, don't be stingy. Man, you need to share your inheritance. But to the other brother, he says, hey, there's more than life than money. Stop getting all bent out of shape over your inheritance. Just split the money, not the family. The money isn't worth a brother. Good words to both brothers. Well, verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store all of my crops? And so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build bigger barns, greater barns. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. He could have shared. <laughs> he could have given away some of these crops But no, he tore down his barns and he built bigger barns and he decided to hoard, not share. And then he got haughty. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Boy, it's dangerous to carry on a conversation with yourself. Notice this. He thought within himself. Then he said to his soul. Here this rich man says to his soul. But notice, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So he who lays up treasure for himself... And is not rich toward God. You know, in contrast to the rich man, I heard of an elderly lady who lived just down the street from Southern Mississippi University. Her name was Osceola McCarty. She spent her 80 plus years in a one room shack washing clothes for the town's lawyers and doctors. And in the process, she saved a little money. About And rather than reward herself with an exotic vacation or with a new house, Mrs. McCarty donated the sum to Southern Miss to provide scholarships for needy students. What a lady. Hey, never say to your soul, soul, take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Our soul doesn't need to take its ease. Our soul needs to be stretched. Our soul needs to be challenged. Say to your body, take a break. Take some ease. Eat, drink, be merry. You can say that to your body, but don't say that to your soul. It's healthy to relax your body, but you need to keep stretching your soul. Keep challenging your soul. Keep growing your soul. Don't let your soul become sluggish. Keep pressing toward God. Keep exercising toward godliness. Lay up treasure in heaven. Well, then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Why don't we ever live like, how can we live like life is food? We're always thinking about our next meal. You know, we're always thinking about the fancy restaurant. We're always thinking about what we're going to cook. Or our life is clothing. The new clothes that we're going to buy. We live for the next shopping spree. Life is more than food and fashion. Don't get mired down in the trivial, material concerns are of no value in the long run. Don't miss out. Don't get mired down in material, tangible concerns and miss out for the very reason you were created. You weren't created for food and fashion. You were created for heaven and for eternity and for God. He says, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn. They're not worried about their food. Why? For God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Notice this. Worry is irreverent. God has promised to care for our needs. That's why worry is a slap in God's face. It's an insult to his faithfulness and mercy. You are not trusting God if you worry about where your food's coming from or where your clothing's coming from. Worry is irreverent. And then he says, And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? You know, let's say you're vertically challenged. You'd love to add a few inches. Well, why don't you just worry about it? I dare you, go ahead and worry about it. Try to worry yourself into growing an inch or two. Try to do that. Hey, worry changes nothing about our circumstances. It's been said, worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. (laughs) Worry is irreverent and worry is irrelevant. And then he says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Notice this. Worry is irreverent, it's irrelevant, and it's irresponsible. Worry is just a waste of time. While you worry over matters, God promises to provide major issues in your life go unattended. And this is why he tells us, And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God is going to supply what we need materially. We need to focus on His kingdom. We need to focus on spiritual things. If you want to worry about something worthwhile, why don't you worry about the issues that concern God? Like the people around you in your neighborhood and at work that are going to hell. Why don't you worry about the health of your own spiritual life and the condition of your family? Why don't you worry about the strength of your church? If you want to worry about something, don't worry about the stuff God has already promised to provide. Worry about the things that are within your scope and within your realm to impact and effect. You know, here's the irony. The key to worry is worry. If you worry about the right stuff, you won't have time for irreverent or irrelevant or irresponsible worry. He says, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, nor moth destroys. See, here's another way to beat worry that I, I doubt if any of us have even thought of. Sell what you worry about, and you won't be worried about it anymore. You're worried, Just sell it. Give alms to the Lord. You won't have to, anything to worry about anymore. Great way to deal with worry. I'll never forget. We, we had a beagle. I don't know where we... Kathy brought this beagle home. And I was so worried about this beagle because it barked all night long. It woke up the neighbors. One time it jumped out of the second floor window and just dove out into the yard. It would always run away and get into the neighbor's garbage. And then it ate up my carpet and then it scratched through the door. And I worried constantly about this dog until I got rid of the dog. And the day I got rid of the dog, I had nothing else to worry about. Jesus says, sell what you have. You're worried about something, sell it. Give the proceeds to God. Send it on to heaven, and you won't have to worry about it any longer while you're on earth. You don't have to worry about eternal treasures, do you? Eternal treasures don't fall out of the bag, the money bag. They don't rot. They don't get stolen. Eternal stocks don't take a dive and belly up. Invest in the timeless, not the tenuous. And then he says in verse 34, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I love this. Notice your heart follows your treasure. You will love what you value. John Wesley once said, When I have any money, I get rid of it as quickly as possible, lest it find a way into my heart. This is why we need to guard our hearts. You know, our love for God begins to grow cold when the wrong stuff starts to matter to us too much. It crowds God out. It crowds out our love for God. You know, it's not that we, we don't love God. We all love God. The problem is that we love other stuff more than God. And that's what crowds God out. We need to measure our treasure. We need to value those things that are eternal and those things that are spiritual. And if we do, if our treasure's right in the right place, then our heart will follow. We will love God with all our hearts. Jesus says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. I like this. In other words, be ready. Be prepared. You know, Jesus is coming back. And that's why a man needs to hitch up his breeches and belt up his robe. When he does so, it's time to work. A woman lights a lamp when it's time to watch. And so how do we get ready for the Lord's return? We work and we watch. We belt, gird up the waist and we get the lamp burning. Verse 36, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch, that was between 9 p.m. and midnight. The night was divided into four watches. Or come in the third watch, that was from midnight to 3 in the morning. In other words, if he were to come in the wee hours... And find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Notice, a thief's success is due to the element of surprise. Thus, if you're watching, it's easy to defend your house. Just be ready. Years ago, I read the story of Thomas Jones At the time, he was 24 years old when he was arrested for robbing a restaurant in Santa Barbara, California. He handed the cashier a note that threatened to shot her. Of course, he misspelled the word shot. He spelled it, or he misspelled the word shoot. He spelled it S-H-O-T. He meant to say shoot. He said shot. Well, the thief was caught when the police set up a roadblock. And they ask everyone fitting Jones's description to spell shoot. <laughs> Jones was consistent. He spelled it S H O T, and he was easily apprehended. In other words, it's easy to catch a thief when you know what to look for. And this is how you stay ready for the Lord's return you know what to look for, you pay attention. Verse 40. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night, surprisingly and suddenly, unexpectedly. But he's not coming without a host of signs designed to keep us on the lookout. What are those signs? Well, we know from other scriptures, the return of the Jews to their ancient homeland. It's a sign that the end is near. The rebirth of the nation Israel the reunification of Europe, Russian hostilities toward Israel, a growing anti-Jewish sentiment all over the world, an age of global travel and worldwide communication. These are things we see happening in our day, and yet the Bible predicted these things long ago as signs of the Lord's soon return. I believe we're on the threshold of the rapture of the church. And this is why these words are so important for us tonight. We need to be watching and working and ready For Jesus' return. Well, then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? Peter didn't realize the long-term global impact of Jesus' return. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. And if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two, and appoint him his portion With the unbelievers, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. In other words, it will not go well for the man who ignores God's coming, who thinks he has forever, who begins to mistreat the people around him because he doesn't think there's a day of reckoning on the horizon. I mean, notice too, if you shun the master's return, notice you end up numbered with the unbelievers. Give his portion with the unbelievers. If you don't believe in the Lord's soon return, you'll be numbered with the unbelievers. Apparently, real believers believe the whole truth about Jesus. Not just that he came 2,000 years ago, but that he's coming again. Verse 48. But, who, but he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Here, here's a, a golden principle. Knowledge and opportunity produces responsibility. I mean, when it comes to the rewarding of our service, God grades on a sliding scale. <laughs> You know a lot, a lot gets expected from you. You know a little, then the expectations get reduced. He goes on, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Boy, you can hear the emotion in Jesus' voice here. How I wish it were already kindled. One day Jesus is going to call down fire to devour a wicked world. You know, even while on... On earth, Jesus longed to flex his righteous muscles and bring judgment, but he knew that first he needed to bear a cross and be judged for our sin. This is the experience Jesus refers to here in verse 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. and How distressed I am till it's accomplished. He knows what awaits him. Fifth, verse 51, do you suppose that I came to earth To give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Hey, Isaiah 9 refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And that's true. But before we are united in Christ, we are divided by Christ. Jesus is the line in the sand for all humanity. You know, today the lines of demarcation in our culture are drawn around race or age or gender or political persuasion or language or nationality. But in the end, there will only be two groups of people in the world only two those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. Jesus will be the line in the sand for all men. This means that families are drawn together in Christ, but they're also torn apart by Christ when people reject Him. It's ironic. The greatest unifier of men is also the greatest source of division. Jesus came to divide, not just unify. You know, high up, In the Canadian Rockies, there's a little stream. It's called Divide Creek. A boulder sits in the middle of this creek and cuts the creek into two forks. Water that flows left of the boulder rushes into the Kicking Horse River, which flows down ultimately into the Pacific Ocean. Waters that flow to the right of that rock become the Bow River that eventually feed the Atlantic Ocean. Notice, waters from the same stream eventually end up thousands of miles apart. The rock in Divide Creek determines the destiny of each droplet of that water. H2O molecules side by side are separated and sent in opposite directions until they end up thousands of miles apart. It all gets divided though at that boulder, at that rock in the middle of Divide Creek. Likewise, folks who grow up side by side in the same house, a part of the same family, eventually come to a rock called Christ. And a division can occur. Some say yes to Christ. Some say no to Christ. At first, the separation seems minimal. They still have much in common. They still hang out together. But the flow of their life gradually heads in diverse directions. The current ends up taking them an eternity apart one to heaven the other to hell jesus is the rock in the fork in the stream of humanity that that determines that ultimate destiny well then he also said to the multitudes whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west immediately you say a shower is coming and so it is and when you see the south wind blow you say There will be hot weather, and there it is. Clouds out over the ocean meant rain. Arabian winds coming up from the south indicated a heat wave. Jesus starts to sound like the weatherman here. But then he says, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Jesus had fulfilled scripture. He had worked miracles. It was obvious that Messiah had come. But the Jews, they could predict the weather, but they couldn't recognize the signs of the times, what God was doing in their midst, that he had sent Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah. He says, yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, Make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge. The judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. Ultimately, Jesus will judge. He will judge the people of this earth. Ultimately, he will judge for the moment he intends to save. So while it's now, while we're in the moment, before the judge slams his gavel... Look for the plea. Try to settle out of court is what I'd say. And understand there's a deal on the table. Trust in Jesus and he'll pardon all your sin. But go to court. Be tried for what you've done. You'll be proven guilty. And you'll pay every last mite better to opt for God's grace and God's mercy and receive his forgiveness today. Well, there we have tonight's chapters.